Hey everyone, this is Anne Doherty. I am the host of Current, an energy podcast with the Loom Advising. And today we are talking to my colleague Bahre Van Vokel. Bahre uh, comes to us from a long history in energy efficiency work, having worked across uh, multiple facets of the industry from architecture to buildings to government to implementation and joins us at a loom to start the next chapter of her career as a researcher. Um, today, we are focused on a number of different aspects of what it means to be a woman in energy, a woman in Iran, the relationship between those two things. And we also even get into our bucket lists and uh, various dreams and aspirations that we have um, for ourselves personally and also within our careers. So I'm really excited to introduce Bahre and to give you all the opportunity to get to know her a little bit. I'm sure you're going to love this conversation. So I I am an American Iranian first generation immigrant. Uh, if I want to kind of introduce myself, I introduce myself as a mother of two, daughter and wife. And uh, I'm a trained architect, actually. I say I'm a recovered architect that find my way through passion for sustainability and being interested really to kind of uh, be working in the sustainability field. I found myself in energy industry and more specifically energy efficiency in the third decade of my life. So yes, uh, that's me in two, three quick sentences. I love that. I want to hear more about your interest in architecture. I think of architecture in a lot of ways as being like this interesting um, hybrid of art and science, right? And engineering. And um, and then it's compelling to me that you then switched into energy mm-hmm. efficiency. So talk to me first about what excited you about architecture and what prompted you to move into um, this energy. other field. Yeah. Sure. So it and it's a little bit different. Uh, I grew up in Iran and over there pretty much in high school, you have to decide which field you want to go. You okay. go either biology or math. So I selected math. And when you are going to go to university, it's not like here that you have where you select where you want to go and some general field and you can go test it. You pretty much have to decide what you want to do for the rest of your life uh, when you're okay. 18, um, you pass this national test and based on the score, you will be, you know, if you give a ranking of where you want to be and they select you. So it's a little bit more limited uh, of how you can actually decide where you can position yourself. Architecture, when I was uh, studying, uh, was a field that you would actually get accepted um, for the master program was very prestigious as kind of okay. being a high achiever student. So that resonated with me. My father sure. uh, was a construction engineer working with other architects. He really wanted me to be an architect because it was this great career. And imagine in the developing country, when you are building a lot, it's actually kind of prestigious job security and exactly what you said. It's a perfect combination of art and science. So I feel my decision was very much kind of like all of those factors, like parents mm-hmm. interested, society kind of valuing it. I loved physics. So if I was on my own, I would have gone and studied physics or mechanics. 
But I thought, career, Bahara, you know, you have one shot, you're doing this test, you have to select. So I started architecture. Um, it was it was interesting. I, I realized um, I enjoy the art part. I enjoy the, the process. What I didn't really enjoy was um, the part that you have to commit to a design and go develop it. I'm like mm-hmm. that brainstorming, bringing all of this idea, reading philosophy, getting inspired. That was my perfect place. The part that, okay, I settled with this one, unless develop it, uh, was not necessarily something that would make me excited. Um, through architecture, actually, I learned about sustainability. My first exposure to sustainability was sustainable design. When you actually look at the triple bottom line, the ecology, the economy, and the society, and it was like aha moment. I was like, that that's that's resonate the most. What I learned mm-hmm. that kind of almost creating something that serves rather than sometimes being an architect. You are the creator. You create this vision, and I felt this sustainability has this element of serving what is needed. Uh, I was fascinated with it when I came uh, to United States. I got my leadership in energy and environmental design. This is back at the early ages that kind of you it's it's a certification I created a professional that you can help design sustainable building of course back then as a junior architect I couldn't convince my senior designers to kind of incorporate these sustainability measures or not value engineer this energy efficiency measure out and with my 20-something brain, I'm like, what should I do? Apparently, you can't. You got this lead accreditation. You still can't make a difference. And I thought, maybe I need more education. Um, back then, I was in Delaware. I'm still in Delaware. There was a degree, a big picture sustainability, but kind of uh, focus on energy and environmental policy. It's like, let's start it. Let's see how it is. I actually started part-time and fell in love with energy efficiency. We had to take policy classes, energy policy, environmental policy. And I remember I was like, wow, energy, it has this policy side, the technical side, the technology side. It's just like, it was all of these elements that um, was really interesting come out of that program. And I say, I fell in love with energy efficiency in that program. And I came out and I didn't want to be an architect. I wanted to be uh, at the, I wanted to actually work at the level that can influence policies and programs that eventually will kind of enable kind of buildings we want to see. I realized, yes, you can be on the yeah. ground promoting sustainability, but what if you set the right policies? What if you set the right program? And then you would see all of those buildings fall. So that was like a very long way of me telling you how these wavy path from architecture and then immigrating and going to energy efficiency. I love that. You know, well, first, I think it's fascinating that you come from a family of building people, right? You know, like um, I have a similar background in that I come from a family of sort of uh, social workers and, you know, public school teachers. And so my orientation is very people centric in terms of like solving human problems. And you're coming at it and came to sustainability from this vantage point of the building, but then having your energy aha moment, which I think is really cool to talk about. And um, and also interesting that you came to this, I, you know, this really reality that policy can shift all the buildings, not just mm-hmm. the one that you are working on. When you think about um, 
like joining a loom, what drew you to that shift? Because we don't necessarily focus on buildings per se. Now, certainly we do because we work in energy and energy efficiency, but it's not necessarily how we would describe ourselves, but it's very much a part of what we do. So I'm curious to know from like your vantage point, what does this shift represent for you in your career as a, you know, a new team member? Sure, sure. So what I look at it, um, if I want to define uh, myself, I want to say I always work at the intersection of energy and buildings. And we use our energy in our buildings. So we do have an infrastructure, but at the end of the day, we are trying to also, we have transportation, but a big portion of our energy are used at the building. So that was my kind of entry point. And as I work, you know, as I brought this kind of like understanding of the building and how people live in this building, how they function and the, the energy they use, I kind of weave these two together. Um, joining Alum, uh, you know, it was it was always actually I want to say my wish list to join Alum. Um, I've known Sarah for the last twelve years, and I remember when she told me that she's going to start her company. She's thinking of starting her company with her friends, uh, uh, you know, being you and what she envisioned for it. It was inspiring. And I have witnessed what you have done for the last nine years and uh, the, the values you set out to work with, the values of if what we what we leave, what uh, the people who are employed here, we believe they should leave, the products that you put out there. So it was always fascinating to see your perspective, your project and your organization as like the way you carry yourself with value. So I was like joining alone because of what you do in the industry and because of the way you run your business. Again, mm-hmm. I'm putting that value there. Value is big. Uh, uh, I want to say that's my North Star. Uh, wanted to do that. When I'm here, you still uh, energy efficiency program that you evaluate people you talk to, they use the energy inside their home. A lot mm-hmm. of our residential customers, that's where they use the energy. So there is that context, there is that uh, building together. I was lucky enough to work on all electric new construction project. It was just mm-hmm. like a dream job, like yeah, new construction, uh, all electric. Uh, I'm working with another research on equity and building energy codes. These are again, so alone is actually, you have a lot of that intersection there that mm-hmm. I have worked with. Um, and there is this kind of value-oriented intentionality. I want to kind of like human-centric perspective that you bring to program. So that's uh, that's why I'm here. And um, yeah. I'm excited to be part of Alum's team. Oh my gosh, we're so excited to have you. You know, when I think about it um, and what you're joining us also, it, it sort of um, signals also a sort of a shift that the energy industry is having in the way that it's thinking about buildings. So you're joining us at a time also when people are starting to be understood as um important stakeholders in buildings. You know, it's sort of like our our industry for a while had this orientation that buildings were the extension of the electric grid. And in extending the electric 
grid or meters to homes or offices or, you know, communities that we were um, looking to control that building and provide mm -hmm. benefit to that building. And now we're starting to understand, I think for the first time, like truly get it in our bones, and there's still a lot of work to do, that people are the beneficiaries of these investments. And mm -hmm. that as we're thinking about things like code, how do you think about code equitably? That is in and of itself to our industry, a very mind blowing question. But what's cool about your role in joining these projects is that to answer that question well, you have to know buildings just as well as you know people and the equity issues. And you have both of that because you have been pushing forward different forms of equity in our industry yourself. So when you say that we're value aligned, I think that's true, but we haven't talked about your values and the way that you have pushed some of that stuff forward. So can you talk to me a little bit about some of the other sort of equity related work you've been doing in um, the energy space? Sure, sure, thank you. I um, I want to actually go back. Um, I think my background where I come from very much define my values. So I grew up in Iran um, when I was two years old, revolution happened. And yeah. pretty much after that, a couple of years after that, we started a eight, nine years old. Uh, I don't think if we started is the right framing, Iran-Iraq war. So I mm -hmm. am um, a person who grew up in a revolution from one authoritarian regime to kind of another one, which was yeah. also, I would say, worse, uh, never experienced democracy, then war. Um, and through that process, I joke and say, I experienced two different uh, dictatorship and coming to a country, uh, being privileged enough to come to a country that there is democracy and you can make a difference. I felt if I can help improve people's life, I should, because I come from somewhere that even if you want, you can't, because if you're active socially, if you're a social worker, then you can be put on prison. So I mm -hmm. came from that background that if you have the privilege and the freedom to help make a difference in people's life, you should. With that perspective, um, when I joined the state government at what used to be energy office, recovery money came, you're putting all of these programs out there. And I was put at the evaluation measurement verification role. And I look at all of these rebates, um, home performance with energy um, star rebates that we gave. And money was so much that we had to increase the, um, increase the incentive. And I see it actually, all of the rebates, we mapped it on GIS, were on those pockets of wealthy communities. And it's like, th that's not it. Yes. So we can't. Yeah. So I remember I draw that map and I kind of put it on the income and say, we need to figure out how to change this scenario. Yeah. I feel like in a lot of perspective, you're still trying to figure out how to change yeah. that. How actually kind of make sure that all of us are uh, contributing to the public benefit charge to this in our states, Reggie, but not everybody is benefiting from it. I put solar panel on my roof. I'm getting 5,200 rebates from the state. I'm going to get tax credit. The funds I'm getting, everybody put it there, but not everybody is actually uh, using it. So that's the core of what I feel I have been fighting 
Okay, I feel like because I experienced a war, I'm just like all of the, my word acronyms like fighting, but it is kind of like, <laughs> for me, it's just like, we have to get it right. I want, yeah. um, I always, uh, when I'm uh, in meetings, I do a lot of advocacy work when I'm meeting with Sierra Club and other groups, yeah. uh, climate reality in our local community. I said, we all have our EVs and PVs, you know, like, and then we are kind of pushing for these other policies that we think we are sitting here being so privileged. Do we think actually, what about people in downtown? I mean, yes, we want more infrastructure for EVs, but are they buying um, new cars? Like who's buying new cars? So should we think about e-mobility from shared car EVs there? So what is it that we need to think? That has been the area that I have been pushing both when I was in the state government, kind of showing those disparity of where we are spending. And uh, after a couple of years in the government, when I had an opportunity to join an implementer that was working in a low-income yeah. program, I actually jumped on it, uh, was on the trenches, in the trenches, doing energy efficiency audit, writing ASHA level two report, doing resiliency audit. And again, seeing the kind of obstacles and um you know, I want to say barriers that some of these communities and some of these customers face to participate. So that has been always the area that I have been pushing both on if there was an advocacy opportunity or within working working on low moderate income program, trying to kind of find creative ways to at least go over some of these barriers, making it easier uh, for some of our frontline communities to get their share, to be honest, we are getting yeah. our share and they are the ones that are not getting. So that has been, again, kind of very much on implementation on the ground, small scale. And I'm really excited that Alum is thinking big picture, thinking infrastructure, the work you have done with the state of New York, the work that was just published with uh, Comet uh, and under CJA. This is like, you're actually looking big picture and saying, okay, let's get the framework right. And if we get it right, then we kind of can, I want to say, um, trickle down and try to actually have something to go off of. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if it was helpful or not. No, it's wonderful. I mean, I you touched on so many things. And one thing that really resonates with me, and it almost makes me feel a little emotional, is um, thinking about the great privilege it is to be able to try to advance the society or culture that you're living in, right? And it's something I think we often take for granted. Um, we certainly do. And you see that in the way that our democracy has played out in the last, you know, even, mm -hmm. you know, six, seven years. And what, um, what really struck me as you were talking is that doing this well sort of requires continuing to push because, um, these are things we can't take for granted. And these conversations, these uh, tendencies for, say, investment to go to those who can readily access it, who have mm -hmm. the both the political and financial means of accessing those opportunities, will do so. And we're not faulting them for doing that, right? But what we also have to say and like continue to say is, hey, look, there are others here too. Right. And that it is a privilege to be able to say that and to think about how we influence that so that it's not left to programs to call out, as you said, sort of these these disparities or I think what have long been sort of the 
these quiet secrets in the industry in terms of where money is going and where where incentives are going and instead say let's fix this higher up let's mm-hmm. fix this at um the you know sort of the policy level um or with these large large energy companies like um comed who are really trying to do right by these um mandates and make these changes more sweeping and more comprehensive um you know as uh you think about um your experiences too um in Iran there's so much going on right now that um in terms of uh really movement towards freedoms particularly for women and at great cost to those who are engaged in those conversations um and really those protests and um you know in a lot in large part because of um our relationship with you and our dedication to women more broadly alum also donated to causes uh, this this holiday season specifically related to women's rights movements in Iran and i'm interested to hear from you um or to see if that's something you want to talk more about or share more about your experience now being here witnessing this going on in your home country which must feel very um very uh personal and um if it's changed in any way the way you think about some of the energy challenges that we're facing right now either in Iran or in the US these women are very central to to writing um both inequities and also to um you know climate mitigation and other challenges that we're facing it's um there's there's a lot thoughts are kind question. of flying it is it is a big <laughs> yeah. question um i i really appreciate elom's contribution it um and it says a lot i said i'm out of word when i kind of saw that to kind of thank you it's not just the gesture of helping actually financially the fact that you let your um uh, all of your contacts and clients know that you did that that was really big um i think one of the challenges uh of what happens in Iran or other countries with uh, dictatorship and authoritarian um, government is that nobody knows what's happening and it goes unnoticed and we yeah. don't raise a flag and uh, those government can do what they want. In case of Iran, um, because uh, it has gas and oil, like second largest gas resources, I think um a lot was accommodated for kind of whatever they did uh all the kind of whatever they and I always go out of words uh, how they um treated human rights you, you mm-hmm. know everybody kind of basically turned their head and have a blind eye of what was happening because we needed me as the industrial world uh needed the oil and gas. So um I sometimes say energy is also a very personal thing for me. Energy yeah. defines why actually you see that there is no democracy in my country and the transition was from one dictatorship to other dictatorship. Uh because there's a lot at stake. There is kind of like um uh, a lot of resources and energy independence being able to know where you get your energy and how it was harvested and do you own it and it, it also helps with 
world peace and it helps with human rights. So I think if we can see that connection, it will be really helpful. Um, I remember when um, I want to kind of actually kind of look at another geopolitic dynamic when Russia invaded Ukraine a year and a half ago. We would see on TV people showing that they were draining their uh, Russian vodka. And I'm like, why? Why? Like, ask yourself, though, what is the gas in your car? Do you know that the reason actually Russia has the audacity of invading another country is because of its gas? Look, if we, we as individual want to take action we don't need to drain vodka good vodka down the drain we actually need to go change our modes of transportation put solar panel and get an eb like i know these are harder to do than draining mm-hmm. vodka but that's why and i think actually a lot of things that are happening with uh, in iran is also because a lot of people and a lot of government needed the uh, oil and gas and they're like you do what you need to do as long as we get the oil and gas and yeah. You know, there is a point, uh, they say, uh, this government took um, took Iranian people hostage for 43 years. And I agree. And then it, mm-hmm. it's just, there is a point that for the last couple of years, it's just like, we can't do it. I think climate change exacerbated that. I think the fact that there are droughts, there are actually uh, energy crisis. Surprisingly, the second country, the, the country with the second largest gas resources in the winter didn't have enough gas because they don't have the infrastructure. So mm-hmm. energy and climate crisis made things worse geopolitically, you know, and now we are at the point that, okay, it's enough. I'm hoping that other countries and through the pushes, like we see that happening, kind of other countries realize this oil and gas, it comes at the price of human right. It comes at a price of, this government killing people, do we want mm-hmm. that? So I'm yeah. just hoping that, that we will kind of see that those transition and kind of cutting those, I want to say, bloodline to them, which is basically yeah. their gas and oil. And then they would see hopefully uh, some shift in the government. Well, and your um, underlining of the relationship uh, between oil and gas and energy resources and human rights could be also sort of extended to so many geopolitical conflicts that we've seen, at least in my lifetime, and I'm sure certainly yours. And um, and we've often failed to make that connection, I think in particular when we're thinking about our households. I think we tend to think about it more with respect to maybe the gas that goes into our cars or perhaps even, you know, transportation, um, global transportation or big industry, but forget often that like when we're turning switches on and off in our home or using our heat, that there is a true cost to that. That's not just about the resource itself, but about humans and in many cases, freedoms for many people around the world. And I think it's so important and just so appreciate that you discussed that. And, um, you know, another area that you brought up that I think is really interesting is, um, you know, this discussion of infrastructure as being this very sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, crippling factor in, um, in, in, in most really countries at this point in terms of we're starting to address 
issues like climate change, we're realizing that we are not set up to accommodate this and don't have the infrastructural resilience in place to, um, to really meet these challenges head on and, and protect people in, in the process. When you think about um, some of the work that's going on in the United States right now around uh, the infrastructure bill, for example, are there certain aspects of it that excite you or certain things that you've been following that are of interest to you? And it doesn't have to be specific to that, but more sure. infrastructure generally. It is. Um, I have actually seen um, more of uh, infrastructure investment on energy efficiency at the grades to uh, the programs that are coming out with electrification. That, that excites me. But I have seen other investments that are even open to utilities to go get funds competitively. And that excites me because if we were worried that we don't have enough backup, if we were worried that, okay, how are we are going to make it? I think this is the time. This is once in a lifetime opportunity that policies, funds, and our will can align to go make a difference. So there are all of these investments that are coming down on opportunities to create batteries, backup, and renewable, and kind of trying to figure out how to make it work resiliency, and they're putting money behind it. Um, it, it's it's exciting time. It, it it is actually kind of I get excited. So you will see it when I think of uh, IRA. I I really hope it's hard when um, when you send the money down through the administrative process. You know there are bureaucratic things. So it, it's not like we have the money. Let's go make it happen. There are certain processes that are going to slow it down. But still, it's the best time we have ever seen to kind of make this vision of clean energy clean resilient and hopefully equitable energy future happen. I see a lot of, um, I have been digging in what IRA has for uh, electrification, especially that they have the low income, you're qualified for actually this cap, the mid income. And then also um, if you don't meet those requirements, it's only tax credit. I see the intentionality to kind of correct these disparities. Uh, so it's very exciting. I know there is a lot of work to be done to make sure actually this low income are going to get these $8,000, $20,000. So you can get up to a certain cap. Um, you need to have capacity. You need to have the program. So I hope states are able to create these infrastructure capacity and connect people to these resources but once in a lifetime opportunity. So I'm really excited. Uh, we need a lot of, I think, creative idea, a lot of people on the ground uh, kind of looking at the opportunity and say, I want to jump in. I want to be part of that. I want to be the connector. I need. I think we need a lot of connector between the funds that are coming down with people that need it, that kind of connection infrastructure. I yeah. don't know if it exists. And we need people to commit to creating those connections, those bridges. And uh, kind of so we can pass on and make the change and transformation. A lot of it is in our building industry. We want to make that happen. So, Bahari, we've talked about so many um, topics that you're passionate about. We haven't talked about like personal interests at all. And one of the things I'd like to ask folks is what's on your bucket list? Like, if we were to share with all the listeners the thing that you really want to achieve before. Gosh, do we call it the bucket list because it relates to kicking the bucket? Anyway, before yeah, you die. I believe so. Yeah. So <laughs> I actually, I want to let you know that in Iran, in our culture, we don't have a bucket list. So, oh, okay. Yeah. So 
So I think it's partially because I, I think actually a bucket list, I don't know if it's only in American culture, but it's definitely a force world privilege kind of perspective. Growing up, actually, I, I thought, would I live to get my high school? Like, would my parents be around? You know, so that that was like, um, yeah, that was how I grew up. Like, I was like, well, I hope I get my high school and my parents are around and I don't need to take care of my siblings, younger siblings. So that's a context of where I come from. So I immigrated here a couple of months in. I learned the expression bucket list. And of course, I have 27 years lost time yeah. to kind of make up now, come up with bucket list. I remember in those early years, I would listen to NPR and Fresh Air Terry Gross. And I noticed mm-hmm. that everybody who made it, actually she would interview them. So one of the first item and my exposure to bucket list and American culture was like, I hope I make it enough that Terry Gross will interview me on Fresh Air. So that was actually my first, and I think the only kind of bucket list check thing that I have. I I feel like there were there were plans, there were visions that I have more kind of they're they're almost like images. Um, and working for alone wasn't my wish list, if you call it bucket list. Uh, I observed that. And I always wanted to be part of this uh, team. What you were doing aspired me. What you and Anne, uh, you and Sarah were doing really aspired me as an individual. And every time I would check job posting, and of course, there were um, social studies or research credential, and I didn't have that. And I would ask myself, would one day I will have enough experience that I can join your team? So um, I feel like, this other tangible item on bucket list is now kind of crossed out. Um, so yeah, so in, we kind of like, there are these big picture items that are not really a uh, bucket list. But then I kind of ask myself, Bahara, what is it that you want to do? Um, I imagine myself being 90 in my 90s and yeah. kind of finally deciding to, well, maybe you need to retire or kind of set back. I want to look back and say, in that kind of, I want to say, battlefield of us trying to move our energy industry, I was there. I want to look and say, this wound is where I was in that battlefield, that I was there. I put everything I had and I moved this kind of energy infrastructure. It's very kind of sensual, kind of like imagey, but that's what I want to kind of look back and say, when we had the when we had the choice, when we had the right policy, when we had the funds, I was yeah. there in the battle pushing it to get to the energy system that we need, which is sustainable, resilient, and just. I love that. I love the imagery of you um, in your old age, you know, being able to sit and reflect back on these things because what a blessing it would be and will be for you to arrive at age 90 and say that because you you are doing it and everything you've described and your passion and the connections you're making um, throughout the course of your life are so mission-driven and so driven by heart that I have no doubt that you will stay true to that, that you will arrive there and feel very proud of yourself um, at that time because you're making it happen. Yeah. And and I also love, I can't let it go, the Terry Gross reference, because I feel like that's something we should be directly plugging when we share this. 
podcast. <laughs> My goal now is officially to uh, make sure that we make sure a little PR campaign. I need to make well, it. The key was I make it enough that I will be because in that like one year immigrant still knew I was like anybody that she talks to made it in mm-hmm. art in you know something in thought. So your goal is make it enough. Uh, get somewhere that you will be worthy of interview at Fresher. So oh, you will, you will definitely do it. And I can see a whole book coming from this. In a way, it feels like um, this is also a moment that demands a voice like yours, in the sense of um, your experiences and also um, your lived experiences, and just the how uh, many facets of um, the energy problem or challenge that we're all facing you both understand but know intimately and feel passionately about and so I really do hope that we can be successful in that plug I will say that we were able to get pace on marketplace and then we started referring to it as market pace because he got interviewed now it was a it was like a couple sentence interview but I can tell you I was deeply jealous because one of my bucket list items is to talk to Kai Rizdal because he is oh my the person God, yes. that he I sounds want. so intelligent like doesn't I, he? yeah he is he's like he's dreamy and I don't even know the guy and I and I was saying to I told Eric, I was like, any bad life information I want delivered by Kai Rizdal. If we can make that happen, like if he ever leaves me, it needs to come from Kai Rizdal. If, <laughs> you know, if the world is coming to an end, I want it to have that little tune and I want Kai Rizdal to tell me. That he is happening. indeed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I, I actually, I really like um, uh, Kai Rizdar. He has this show podcast, Make Me Smarter um, with another oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I would, I used to okay. listen. He definitely has a art, his voice, his delivery. There is something about uh, that person, but I agree. Yeah. Uh, it's just, I wasn't exposed to Kai Rizdar my first year of immigration. It was just <laughs> like, because <laughs> it's like a six Gary's o'clock. Too. Yeah. It was like a six <laughs> o'clock. It was when I would get yeah make my trip but like later uh, when I was driving you know the marketplace definitely I could hear it so it was definitely later but yes that sounds oh good oh my gosh I, I could we could have a whole second conversation of um life in the form of NPR hosts because I have a whole other list yeah that I could talk to you about for hours but um this has been so wonderful. I really uh, have so enjoyed talking to you and like I said I really do believe that you're going to be both on fresh air we're going to make that happen we're going to talk about that as your bucket list <laughs> item going to start life planning for that and also the i'm picturing you in like a very lovely rocking chair at 90 reflecting and being cozy and thinking about all the wonderful things you did surrounded by loved ones and i think thank you're you there too thank you um before we hop, I also wanted to give you the opportunity to make any plugs um in support of um, women in Iran right now. And if there's anything you'd like to say to folks who are listening in terms of contributions or um, things that you feel like they should know, I, I want you to have the airspace to do that. So is there anything you'd like to say or share um, in terms of uh, garnering more support? One thing I um, I want to share is Iran may be... Um, we have, I want to say, um, complicated relationship between Iran and uh, and uh, United States. 
um, I think between people, it has been always love. Between politicians, it has been different dynamics. Uh, but as I look at it, just as an any individual in any part of the world, uh, what's happening uh, in Iran? What uh, authoritarian uh, government uh, taking the whole nation hostage? Uh, it's it reminds me in some part to Holocaust. It's not the only country that we are seeing people being killed, but right now we are seeing the kind of pace and kind of number of killing that is almost genocide. Yeah. We see some of the uh, minority group of Iran, the Kurds and the Baluch are actually being killed in kind of mass numbers. And um, if you ever ask yourself why people didn't act when genocide was happening or why people in Rwanda were killing or when, mm -hmm. uh, you know, other killing happened, there is an opportunity to speak out. Um, there's an opportunity to ask your representative, what are we doing? Like, I know it's a different country, but this level of brutality should not be allowed in our world. I think if each of us as individual uh, is important to think of it. And I believe, um, not sure if it was Hillary Clinton or it's a sign to her that said, human right anywhere is human right everywhere. And if we kind of see that connection of all of our humanities being connected, and if it's going, if people are dying in another country, even if it's removed, we have to understand that's on all of us as human to uh, fight for it. So that would be maybe my message. Um, talk to the representative and say, it's it's not okay. It's not okay to stay quiet. Uh, it's not okay to, let's take a stand. And a, a lot of uh, politicians in Europe have taken stand. And I think we need more politicians um, in the United States to take stand and say, it's not okay. We can't get their oils even behind a curtain, even though we're getting it, we need to cut that one out. So they are like, surprisingly, mm -hmm. even we are in a worse relationship, there are still things happening behind the curtain. So we kind of need to yeah. drop the curtain. We really need to understand we can't get that oil and gas. We need to dry out bloodline to a regime that is killing people and uh, taking a whole nation hostage. Well, thank you for that. I, um, <clears throat> excuse me, just so appreciate your willingness to engage in this particular conversation and your openness. So everyone is listening, you heard it directly from Bahre. So please call your representatives and really move them to take action. Um, it has been such a pleasure. I wanna keep talking. I can't believe our time is up. So I feel like the next time you're in Tucson, you have to come over. And one of the things I didn't tell you is that I'm completely obsessed with Persian food. And I have been working on my Tadig for a couple oh, of wow. years now. Nice. I think I've gotten it, but I don't have anyone with any like credible experience to come in and critique it for me and tell me how I could do better. So maybe I can cook for you and you can tell me all the ways I need to improve. Sounds good. There's a good. there's a whole book on Tadik I'm going to get for you. But it, knowing Tadik is pretty advanced, and I'm very impressed that uh, you know Tadik and if that crispy part of the bottom of the pan that you let crisp up uh, with uh, butter or oil, and you know sometimes if you have saffron, then it just it's the best part so of delicious. the rice. Yeah, it's so delicious. My family loves it, and we fight about it, and. Um, like who gets to eat it really because there's always like some leftover but um 
No, it's my favorite thing. And what led me to it actually was this like looking into my family's Hungarian um, histories with um, rice and cabbage rolls, stuffed cabbage that I then ended up sort of touring all of these cuisines that were sort of diasporic um, that started in Persia. And so it was really interesting um, because my like exploring my own roots actually led me to this whole other cuisine that I just adore. And so mm -hmm. I'm excited to cook for you because food is my love language. And then we can talk more about all these things. Same, really great. same here. Food is my love language too. I mean, uh, Persian culture, actually, that's a way of showing love, correct? Then we share a lot of things then. Yeah. yeah. Paragraph so sentences and love of food. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. All right. I love it. Cool. Thank you again for listening. I hope you've learned a little something for our conversation with Bahrain. I look forward to engaging with you all. If you have any questions or comments or thoughts on this episode, you can reach out to us at info at Illum Advising. Uh, this podcast was brought to you by the Illum production team. Our music is from Blue Dot Sessions. Hope you all are doing well. We'll talk to you next time.